We're continuing our series in Leviticus, and we're almost done with it. So to live in the presence of God is what the series title has been, and you'll see, I think, that that's a particularly appropriate title as we turn to our passage this morning. Leviticus chapter 26, we're going to be talking about obedience or disobedience. And to put it very simply, it's two sides of the same coin, the main idea in this passage. Obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings punishment. Now, to set the stage, we're not talking about obedience bringing the blessing of salvation. We're talking about for God's people, as they live in God's presence, obedience brings blessing in his presence. Disobedience brings punishment and ultimately removal from his presence. Now, if you're a parent and you've had the experience of telling your children very clearly what they may or may not do and watching them do exactly what you told them not to do. You can lay out for them very clearly exactly what it is that the consequences will be if they disobey. And they still go ahead and do exactly that. It's frustrating as a parent, right? That's exactly what the nation of Israel did. And this, is, this passage that we're looking at today is, in a sense, God laying it out for them. He's saying, if you obey, here's what will happen. And if you disobey, here's exactly what will happen. And you'll see as you read the consequences for disobedience in this passage, at times it reads almost like a history of the nation of Israel. It's exactly what came to pass. But beyond that, this passage points us ultimately to Christ. It's not just about Israel, it's our story too. It shows us why we need Christ and the glory of what he's done on our behalf. So turn with me, if you haven't already, to Leviticus chapter 26. And this morning, we're just going to take this kind of a couple verses at a time and explain what's there. And then once we've finished working our way through the chapter, we've got uh, just a couple of ideas that we want to kind of look at in a little more detail to help us round it off and kind of let the ideas that are in this passage sink in well. So Leviticus chapter 26, 26 let's start with verse 1. You shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image or pillar. You shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. So notice there in verse 2 that Sabbath and sanctuary go together. If you were to flip back a couple of pages to chapter 19, and verse 30, you would read exactly the same thing. You shall keep my Sabbath and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. In God's mind, those two things go together, Sabbath and sanctuary. They're both memorials or reenactments of the original creation. They signal what is supposed to be, and they foretell what will be. But both Sabbath and sanctuary have to do with God's presence. God present with his people. In the garden sanctuary, in the original creation, God walked and talked with Adam and Eve. In the Sabbath, they rested in fellowship with God. Man was renewed in the presence of God. You might remember a couple of weeks ago when we talked about the, the holy place and the Light from the candlestick is shining intentionally. It's directed toward the table with the bread. And the bread represents the tribes of Israel. So the idea there is that this gets renewed every Sabbath. 
And Sabbath is God's people resting in his presence. It's renewal in the presence of God. So Sabbath and sanctuary kind of embody that idea. All right, let's look at verse 3. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time of, for sowing. Then you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. So as we're looking here in these verses at blessings for obedience, we begin with material prosperity. Obedience brings blessing, and here God is promising to give material blessing, agricultural blessing, if the people obey. And what I want to just briefly point out in these verses is this. The physical material world is connected to the spiritual. We tend to think of them as separate. We think of spirituality as something that's in the mind or in the spirit. But there's a unity to the world and spiritual realities have very real physical world consequences. Another way of saying that for us today would be that the gospel makes a difference. When the gospel is lived out in a culture, it matters. And when the gospel is not lived out in a culture, that matters too. Verse 6. <clears throat> I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall, excuse me, yes, you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred. And a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. So this is peace and security. When God's people obey, God gives them peace and security. Think of the vision of the future kingdom, the lion laying down with the lamb. When obedience is worldwide, peace and security will be the norm. Verse 9. I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. So there's productivity here. Note the language. I will make you fruitful and multiply you. That's Genesis language. That's the creation mandate. God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. And God now says that if we live the way we're designed... According to God's law, then we will be doing what we're created to do, and there's prosperity that comes with that. Verse 11, <clears throat> and here we're specifically looking at the idea of the Lord's presence. I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not, shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. <clears throat> so we're going to come back to these verses at the end. But for now, let's just notice this. The Lord's presence brings blessing. The Lord points back to the Exodus. They've been freed, so now they are to walk with him in freedom. And what does it look like to walk with him in freedom? It looks like following God's law. God's law is not slavery. It is freedom. 
All right, verse 14, and this whole big section here, and we'll break it up, but this whole big section, <clears throat> you see what happens when there's disobedience, and it's an increasingly worse description of punishment as it goes. All right, verse 14. But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, and so now here's going to follow a list of severe punishments, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. So you'll face disease, and you'll face defeat by enemies. There's global or national implications here for disobedience to God's law. Verse 18 and if in spite of this, you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. And I will break the pride of your power. And I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. And your strength shall be spent in vain. For your land shall not yield its increase. And the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. So God hates pride. And when people will not repent, it's evidence of pride. God will break their pride and he'll send agricultural failure. Verse 21. <clears throat> then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. And I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number so that your roads shall be deserted. So here the land actually becomes wild. The animals become wild. This is a reversal of what Adam was supposed to do. Adam is supposed to subdue the earth, to have dominion. And here, because the people are not obeying God's law, the reverse is happening. There's an increasing wildness. And God's judgment is that culture here devolves and it creates a more dangerous situation. Verse 23. And if by this discipline you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will also walk contrary to you. And I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins. And I will bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant. And if you gather within your cities, I will send pestilence among you. And you shall be delivered into the hand of an enemy. When I break your supply of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in a single oven and shall dole out your bread again by weight. And you shall eat and not be satisfied. So the sword, this means war, pestilence, being delivered to an enemy. And along with this, no food supply, scarcity. Verse 27. But if in spite of this, you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury. And I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. God will walk contrary to them in fury. You do not want God furious with you. And you do not want God walking contrary to you. Verse 29. You shall eat the flesh of your sons. And you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. And I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars. And cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols. And my soul will abhor you. 
And I will lay your cities waste and will make your sanctuaries desolate. And I will not smell your pleasing aromas. And I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations and I will unsheathe the sword after you. And your land shall be a desolation and your cities shall be a waste. I hope you're tuned in and reading and paying attention to what's actually going on there. Here we have cannibalism, and not just cannibalism, but of your own children. If you persist in your disobedience, this is how bad things will get, God says. Your places of worship will be torn down. Your dead bodies will be tossed on the ruins of those places. Your cities will be laid waste. God will devastate the land. The people will be scattered among the nations. The sword will be unsheathed against them. The land of desolation and the cities laid waste. What is that describing? You honestly could not find a much more specific description of what happens to Jerusalem in 70 A.D. This is the time when the Roman general Titus comes and lays siege to Jerusalem in response to the Jewish revolt. And they barricade the city and things get so bad inside the city, Josephus, the Jewish historian, writes about it and he basically says, this is the worst situation that has ever been seen on the face of the earth. In all the histories that have been written before this, Josephus says, nobody has ever described a time as awful as what happened in Jerusalem during this time. Let me read to you a little bit of what he says. This is from Josephus's Wars of the Jews. <clears throat> and I'm just going to pick a few little couple of verses or a couple of uh, sentences here and there. He says, now of those that perished by famine in the city, the number was prodigious and the miseries they unwent, underwent were unspeakable. For if so much as the shadow of any kind of food did anywhere appear, a war was commenced presently and the dearest friends fell a fighting one with another about it, snatching from each other the most miserable supports of life. He goes on to talk about how people, <clears throat> the men were just wandering and staggering and reeling through the city, breaking into houses and just looking for any scrap of food anywhere they could find it. <clears throat> Moreover, their hunger was so intolerable that it obliged them to chew everything while they gathered such things as the most sordid animals would not touch and endured to eat them. Nor did they at length abstain from girdles and shoes and the very leather which belonged to their shields. They pulled off and gnawed. The very wisps of old hay became food to some. He talks about how people would gather up little <clears throat> bits of hay they could find and, and sell them. And it was like a very expensive thing because people were so desperate. <clears throat> and he writes, but why do I describe the shameless impudence that the famine brought on men in their eating inanimate things. While I'm going to relate a matter of fact, the like to which no history relates, either among the Greeks or the barbarians. It is horrible to speak of it and incredible when heard. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then he goes on for a section to describe a woman named Mary. It's very specific. Her father was Eliezer. 
of the village of Bethazub. <clears throat> she lives in Jerusalem. She <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> she became so desperate in this situation, and she had a baby. She thought there's no point in allowing this baby to grow up in this situation. <clears throat> and she killed her baby and cooked and ate half of her baby. And she describes the, Josephus describes the many people who came because they heard or they, they, they smelled food cooking. And they ran in and she showed them what she had done. And they all ran out disgusted. <clears throat> and he talks about how even the Romans were so just appalled by what was going on in Jerusalem that they said, it's actually better that this city gets wiped off the face of the earth. That's how bad it got for God's people in Jerusalem. And why did that happen? What was their ultimate final act of disobedience that brought this judgment? Rejecting their Messiah. And Josephus, as he sums it up, he says, those that were thus distressed by the famine were very desirous to die, and those already dead were esteemed happy because they had not lived long enough either to hear or to see such miseries. If you were to just sit and read through what Josephus says there, it is just a direct fulfillment of what God says here in Leviticus 26 will come on a people who persist and persist and persist in their disobedience. Verse 34. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate while you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest. The rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. So the land experiences now the Sabbath that it was denied through the people's disobedience. Verse 36. And as for those of you who are left... I will send faintness into their hearts in the lands of their enemies. The sound of a driven leaf shall put them to flight and they shall flee as one flees from the sword and they shall fall when none pursues. They shall stumble over one another as if to escape a sword though none pursues and you shall have no power to stand before your enemies and you shall perish among the nations and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. And those of you who are left shall rot away in your enemies' lands because of their iniquity and also because of the iniquities of their fathers, they shall rot away like them. So they're going to live now in fear and defeat. But that's not the end. Verse 40. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me, and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. If then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity. So the condition God is laying out here is repentance, confession of sin, and making restitution. Verse 42, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I will remember the land, but the land shall be abandoned by them and enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. And they shall make amends for their iniquity because they spurned my rules and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, 
When they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them. Neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. These are the statutes and rules and laws that the Lord made between himself and the people of Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. So if they listen, if they confess, if they repent, then the Lord will uphold the covenant and restore them. So what is it here that we need to see? The main idea that I want you to walk away with is this. The obedience of God's people brings blessing in God's presence. The obedience of God's people brings blessing in God's presence. And the central point here is found, I think, in verses 11 through 13. The ones we said we'd come back to. And I'm going to read those again in just a minute. But before we do, I just want to highlight kind of where we are. If you can remember back to when people used to go to the shopping mall and you'd walk out and in the middle of the mall there was the, the directory and one side of the directory had the map and there's a little red dot that said, you are here. Okay, that's, where, that's what I want to do for us right now is the you are here of Leviticus. Okay, so here's a quick review. Chapters 1 through 7, there were instructions for the offerings that were to be made, that the people were to make. Then chapter 8, there was instructions specifically for the priests. In chapter 9, the tabernacle operations began. The sacrifices were made and God came to dwell in the tabernacle. Chapter 9 tells us the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. <clears throat> so the tabernacle is now operating the way that it's supposed to, but it doesn't last very long because chapter 10 Nadab and Abihu offer strange fire. We don't know exactly what that means, but it's some sort of disobedience to what the Lord had said. And so they themselves are consumed by the Lord. Rather than the offering being consumed, it's Nadab and Abihu who are consumed. And so then the next six chapters, or 12, 13, 14, five chapters, 11 through 15, gives us instructions about clean and unclean. What does it take to be able to come into God's presence, to be clean? What is the uncleanness that needs to be purged? Nadab and Abihu have brought uncleanness into the tabernacle. What are we going to do about it? And so God delineates clean and unclean. And then finally in chapter 16, the centerpiece of the book, the Day of Atonement. This is how the people and the sanctuary are purified. And everything there from chapter 10 down to chapter 16 all happens in one day. It's the same day that Nadab and Abihu are consumed that the Day of Atonement is instituted. And then following on the heels of the Day of Atonement, we have the Holiness Code. What we've been through recently, chapters 17 through 25, where God is basically saying, you shall be holy for I am holy. How should a holy people live before God? These are the laws for holiness. And all of this takes place at the foot of Mount Sinai. God is speaking now. He, he's, he's brought the nation together. This is, they're being formed together as a nation. And he's saying, you shall be holy, 
So moving on from here, as the future unfolds, you shall be holy because I am holy. God's holiness is eternal. His people are now called, this is how you are supposed to live moving forward from here. And if Israel does this, if Israel lives in holiness and obedience, what will be the result? Leviticus 26, verses 11 through 13, they will live in God's presence. This is what it takes to live in God's presence. So look with me again at verses 11 through 13. Okay. I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you and I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves. I've broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. So verse 11, God will dwell with his people. Verse 12, God will walk among them. Verse 13, because God has redeemed them. Let's just take each one of those one at a time. God will dwell with his people. The storyline of the Bible can be told in terms of God's dwelling in relation to his people. In the creation account in Genesis, God's dwelling is in Eden. And Adam and Eve dwell in the garden of Eden. God's dwelling place is with his people. But when Adam and Eve sin, they're removed from Eden. They're removed from God's presence. There's now a separation that's caused by sin. God's anger burns against sin. And yet he still loves his people. And the rest of the story of the Bible unfolds what God does about it. After the flood, when the earth is repopulated, the people gather together to build a tower that will reach to the heavens. They're, they intend to find their way back to God's presence. But God stops them because sinful people can't enter God's presence. They must come God's way, not their own way. Later, God comes to Abraham and he makes a covenant with him, promising that he will give Abraham a multitude of descendants and a land for them to live in with him. When God rescues Israel out of slavery in Egypt, he forms them into a nation. He gives them his laws like we've been looking at so that they will know how to live before him. He visibly goes with them out of Egypt, leading them in a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. He leads them out to Mount Sinai where he descends on the mountain in fire and smoke while they're at the foot of the mountain. And once they build the tabernacle, According to his design, God comes down on the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. His presence dwelling in the midst of his people. You can picture it. Uh, there's three tribes on, all four, on each of the four sides. God's dwelling right there in the midst of his people. But there's still a dramatic separation. Because the veil of the Holy of Holies separates the the people from God's presence. It separates God's dwelling place from the rest of the camp. And only the high priest can enter and he only once a year following specific instructions to make atonement. Now, once Israel is securely in the land, <clears throat> ultimately they replace the tabernacle with the temple. They build the temple in Jerusalem. And when Solomon builds the, the temple and dedicates it, what happens in that dedication service? 
God's presence comes down and fills the temple. Again, it's God's glory there in the midst of the people, but there's still the separation of the veil. And the nation squanders the blessing they have of God's presence through disobedience. And so God exiles them. He kicks them out of the land. They're removed from God's presence. And at the end of the the Old Testament, the people have come back into the land. They've rebuilt the temple, but God has not returned. God's presence never comes to the rebuilt temple. It's an empty shell. And the people are, as you come to the end of the Old Testament, they're longing for the promises to be fulfilled and for God to come dwell with them. And that's the situation when the Old Testament goes dark for 400 years before the curtain opens on the Gospels. And so into this situation, Jesus arrives, God in the flesh, dwelling with his people in a yet more intimate and tangible way. John 1.14 tells us that the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt, literally tabernacled, among us. And we've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And as Jesus taught, one of the things that he taught his followers was that he himself was the true temple, the true dwelling place of God, the true meeting place of God and man. And in his death on the cross, Jesus opens the way for his people to come into the presence of God. God tore the veil in the temple to symbolize this new access that Jesus has accomplished. Because he paid the penalty for sin, we can now be reunited with God. We may come into God's presence. After Jesus' death and his resurrection, when Jesus ascends to take the throne, he pours out the Spirit of God on his followers, the church. And now the church is the temple of God, the dwelling place of God as the Holy Spirit lives within us. And as God's kingdom grows through the spread of the gospel, one day, Habakkuk says, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Revelation 21 verses 1 through 3 describes the new heavens and the new earth this way. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Okay, the bride That's God's people, the church. So the new city, the new Jerusalem, is the church. It is the dwelling place of God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That's where the story is going. God dwelling with his people. The restoration of his presence with his people. Then Leviticus 26 verse 12 tells us God will walk among them. This language comes from Genesis 3, where we read that God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. Walking indicates fellowship. 
John writes that we're supposed to walk in the light and that shows that we have fellowship with God. In the garden, Adam and Eve had perfect fellowship with God. There was nothing to come between them until they sinned. Once they sinned, they were separated from God. Disobedience brought the end of fellowship. But through Christ, our fellowship is restored. Because Christ's obedience stands for us, we can have fellowship with God. And once we are his people, we are to walk with him. We still have a sin nature. We aren't in unhindered fellowship like we will be one day, but we begin to walk with him now. And Leviticus 26 shows us that obedience to God's commands is necessary to have God walk with us. And then third, Leviticus 26.13, after showing that God will dwell with his people and that God will walk among them, it gives the grounds or the reason for that. How is that possible? Because God has redeemed them. It's redemption that allows us to come into God's presence and have him walk with us. God brought the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt to walk in freedom as his people. He says that they now belong to him and walking according to his law brings freedom. In the same way, God has brought us out of the slavery of sin. He says that we now belong to him and walking according to his law brings freedom. God can dwell with us. God can walk with us because we have been redeemed. Our sin has been dealt with in Christ. As I was thinking about this passage and what it tells us about God and his intentions for living with us, dwelling with us, and what that means for even who we are, I thought about the, the, just the, the proliferation, the, the, the multiplication of identity groups in our culture today. We've got all kinds of identity groups. There's sexual identity groups and there's racial or ethnic identity groups. There's political groups. There's all kinds of ways that people tribalize. They divide themselves off into groups. And we're trying to answer this question, this fundamental human question, who am I? Or even what am I? We live in a culture that, we're living in an age where that's, in, it's shifting in, in unforeseen and, and significant ways. In the past, in past ages, people always defined themselves in terms of their community, their involvement in the community, their religious community, the, 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 the religious group that they were a part of. And then we have kind of a shift to the, the economic in some sense. People define themselves according to their vocation or their calling or their job. But we're moving beyond that today where we're no longer looking outside ourselves, our relation to something else. We're turning inward. We're, we're looking inside. We're saying, what is my true self? And as if we can create from within who we are. What does this passage tell us as we think about obedience bringing blessing and disobedience bringing punishment and God's design that he will be 
with us. That, that we will find our intended goal, our purpose, in having God walking with us as part of his people. What does that tell us about who we are? Well, the Bible tells us that we are created beings. Not just that, but as you look at all of creation and all the different beings that are out there, humans are uniquely created in God's image. We are, in a significant sense, like him. We're not as great, but we reflect things about God in a unique way that no other creature does. But as creatures, we are dependent beings. I didn't create myself. And I don't sustain myself. I don't have the power of life in me. So if I think that I'm going to find my fulfillment in being totally independent and finding my identity and my purpose entirely within myself, I'm in for a rude awakening. That will never bring me joy because it's fundamentally in opposition to my nature. I'm a dependent being. I am created for community. That's one way in which I reflect God, in fact, because God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have been in community in a perfect, eternal relationship of love for all time. And when God created us, we were created to be in community. We're dependent, so we are in relationship to God, necessarily, but we're also in relationship with those around us. We cannot understand who we are apart from understanding ourselves as beings in community. If you were to ask yourself, what does Leviticus 26 tell us about that? It points us to the idea that God's intended purpose for us is to be a people gathered in his presence walking according to his law as he's designed. That's his intent for us. And if we as people today try to find our identity in something else, our core identity, whether it's some sexual identity group, some ethnic group, some political group, whatever kind of group it is, then you're taking that identity group and you're making that thing ultimate. It can't take the place of God. You'll never be satisfied in that because that's not who you were made to be. We were created to be in community with God. We see it in Genesis. We will one day be restored to perfect community with God. That's a revelation. And we see it in God's promises here in Leviticus 26. Why would we think that something else would satisfy us now when what we were made for and where we're headed is being in perfect community with God and with those around us. We can't truly understand who we are apart from God. And that means we can't understand our purpose apart from God. We can't understand our future apart from God. We can't understand our joy, our satisfaction apart from God. And here in Leviticus 26, God tells his people, I have redeemed you, you belong to me. I will live with you. You'll live in my presence. 
and I'll walk with you, we'll have fellowship. God's people are designed for life in the presence of God. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we consider the words of Leviticus 26, again, sometimes it's just, you know, we, we're, we're reading something from thousands of years ago and we struggle to say, this is relevant to, to me and to who I am today. I pray that you would, by your spirit, give us eyes to see, that we would understand that what you have revealed here tells us something about who you are and who we are in light of your having created us. Help us to be willing to submit to your design, to understand that our greatest good will be found in living the way that you've designed for us to live. Help us to embrace your law, not as shackles that we must live under, but as a delight and as the thing that gives us true freedom because it teaches us how to live according to your design. May we be people who seek to walk with you to live with you, to live all of life in your presence. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.